All right. Well, hey, it's really exciting for me to be here with you this morning. So uh, it's great to worship for the first time. Well, for me to be participate with you uh, for the first time. Renewal Mainline. Woo! All right. Sorry. Um, well, Pastor Luke had shared from First Peter last week in light of the launch. Uh, but we're going to get back and continue with our Acts series. And so if you remember, Acts chapter 1 and 2 are really describing the birth of the New Testament church, the birth of the early church. And in our passage today, we see some particular defining marks, uh, some particular characteristics that define this early church. We can call them really birthmarks. And just as some birthmarks, physical birthmarks, stay with you for life, uh, the birthmarks we see in this passage are really meant to stay with the Church of Christ for the entirety of its life until Jesus returns. These are things that should always mark the church. And I think this is a very timely passage as we really birth this new congregation. What an appropriate passage to look at and study what the birthmarks of the church are. So we're going to study this passage under three headings. The marks of the church, the mindset of the church, and the motivation of the church. The marks of the church, the mindset of the church, and the motivation of the church. And so, as we do that, let me invite us to bow our heads in prayer uh, as we look to the Lord for His help. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are present with us now. We thank You that, Lord, as we gather before You, that Your Spirit is here and that You come to minister to us and speak to us and meet with us. And so we invite you to do just that, Lord, especially in these early stages uh, and this important time in the life of this new congregation that your Holy Spirit be at work in a powerful way to shape this church into what you want it to be, not according to what we think it should be, but according to what you think it should be. And you make that clear for us in your word. And so use this time now uh, to enlighten us, to teach us, and to help us to desire to be the kind of church that you died to make. We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. A little challenging here. You want me to switch mics? First mark we see is a devotion to the Word of God. First, uh, verse 41, Peter had just finished preaching to the crowd that was gathered for Pentecost, and it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In one day, it says, 3,000 were added to their number, on top of the 120 that had already gathered pre-Pentecost, And this is the birth of the New Testament church. So not only did God bring the world into existence by speaking his word, let there be light, but God brought the church into existence by speaking his word. And what word was Peter preaching? Well, again, when we studied the first half of Acts chapter 2, Peter gives this sermon at Pentecost. And what you see about that sermon is that it is a Christ-centered sermon. 
It's the word of the gospel. The gospel that you will often hear us share at Renewal in, the, in this way, right? The gospel tells us that we were all called uh, to, to live a life of loving God and knowing God and walking in his ways. But Christ came because we failed to live the life we were supposed to live. And he lived the life we were supposed to live but couldn't live because of the brokenness of our hearts. And he died the death that we deserve to die to bring us to God, rising to new life such that any who believe in him will be raised with him for eternity, to spend an eternity with him as well. That's the gospel. And so it is this gospel that has birthed the church. It is this gospel that really binds us together. D.A. Carson puts it like this. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been loved by Jesus himself. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. In other words, what is the church composed of? People who may not have otherwise been friends, who may not have otherwise interacted in this life, but now not only do we simply interact, not, are we, not only are we just tolerating one another, we have become family because of our common bond in Christ. That's what binds us together. And when anything else becomes the main thing that binds us together, whether it's race and ethnicity, whether it's socioeconomic status or season of life, if anything else becomes the main thing that binds us together, then the church begins to lose its way. The church ceases to be what Christ intends it to be. What should most, uh, uh, the most important bond that we have is our belief in Christ and that all of our lives are centered on Jesus. And so again, the word gives birth to the church. The word binds together the church. But thirdly, the word builds the church up. We are built up by the word. Again, a phrase that we often use at Renewal is the gospel, the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are just, it's not just the ABCs of the Christian faith, the basic stuff that you just kind of need to know when you're a a young Christian or in order to become a Christian, we say the gospel is not just the ABCs, it's the A through Z. In other words, all true growth, all true transformation in your life happens through a deeper understanding of and deeper application of the gospel to your life, that very same gospel. This is why when you look at the New Testament, whenever Paul calls Christians to change, right, to be patient, to be kind to one another, he always, uh, before he tells Christians what to do, he always starts by explaining and unpacking what Christ has done. And what that means is the only reason you're going to change and the thing that's going to inspire change in your life and give you the power to change in your life is the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. Devotion to the word, the word of the gospel, is what grows the church, builds it up, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively in terms of maturity. I came across a recent article in the Washington Post, not a Christian magazine, the Washington Post, and it describes a phenomenon where the actual title of the article is, liberal churches are dying, but conservative churches are thriving. Liberal churches are dying. Conservative churches are thriving. And it basically explains how research was done uh, in Canada mainly, but it's also happening here. And what they realized was years ago, 
some theologians, and we call them liberal theologians, some theologians came to the conclusion, times are changing. People aren't open to Christianity anymore. If the church is to survive, then we, Christianity, must change. And that meant changing the view of the Bible. That meant taking the Bible and kind of pulling all the stuff that was too offensive, not palatable for modern people, kind of taking out all the miracles, all the things that uh, scientific people might reject. And so they kind of gutted the Bible of all that. In other words, they stripped it of what it really is meant to be, the actual literal word of God. And so in so doing, the irony is that instead of thriving, the churches who chose to do that continued to die and die rapidly. Many of them continued to shut their doors. But what the researchers revealed and what shocked the researchers, the churches who were experienced growth, there was a common theme among every one of them. What, why are some churches growing? And what they discovered was all the churches that were growing were the ones that held the word of God and believed the word of God to be the actual word of God and treated it as the actual word of God and took literally who Christ was, a genuine person who lived and died in this world and that everything he said and did was true. Those churches experienced growth. They were the ones thriving. So this shocked the researchers, but brothers and sisters, it should not shock us because it only verifies what we know to be true. This word is truth. And it verifies what we see particularly in this passage that when the church stays committed to this word, the church grows, the church thrives. The second mark we see is not only devotion to the word, is a devotion to fellowship. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now that word fellowship means, literally translates, to share in common with. In fact, it was often used to describe the type of mutuality that takes place in a marriage. In other words, relationships in the church were never meant to be arm's length, cold and arm's length, you know, the obligatory smile during fellowship over a muffin or soft pretzel as we do in West Philly, right? Hey, how are you? (laughs) Right? Just the obligatory small talk. Fellowship was meant to be so much more than that. As we see here, fellowship is not just an event, like fellowship time in however many minutes I preach after that till now that, right? Fellowship isn't just an event, bowling, flag football. Fellowship is so much more than an event. It's a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle. It's, it's, it's a sharing of all that we are. And we see this described in verse 44 and 45. All who believed were together and had things in, all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, this wasn't communism because nobody forced them to do this. It was out of their voluntary will, desire of their hearts, out of love for one another. They so desired everyone's needs in that congregation to be met that they were willing to even sell their own uh, uh, possessions sacrificially to provide for somebody else. This is just one practical expression that we see described here of the type of community they had, but it demonstrates just how invested these people were in each other's well-being. Again, it wasn't enough for them to just share 10 minutes over a cup of coffee. They shared their lives. They were willing to give up so that others could get. That was their heart attitude. But here's the sad thing. 
We read a passage like this as modern Christians, and it seems impossibly unrealistic, right? I use the analogy of, it's like when I see someone or meet someone and they're like, hey, I, I, I live on a low-carb diet, right? Oh, carbs, too much carbs, probably bad for you. It causes a lot of weight gain. So therefore, I, I live according to a low-carb diet. And my response is, that's great for you. I'm so happy for you. And you're right, that's probably healthier. But that's impossible for me, right? As I'm chomping on a loaf of Panera bread. I love carbs too much. I could never see myself living like that. It's probably good and I'm happy for you, but it's impossible for me. And likewise, I think a lot of times we look at the early church and we say, that's awesome. Those times must have been awesome. Good for them, but that's just unrealistic. That's just impossible for us now. And to be fair, they certainly had some unique circumstances in their time that made community life a little bit more accessible. But don't be mistaken, they had their challenges as well. They, as we will see in the coming weeks, there was uh, racial and ethnic tension there in the early church. There were ugly issues that would surface, terrible issues, people stealing from the church, Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes we forget this was a mega church, 3,120 people overnight. And there's all kinds of complexity that comes with this. When we think of modern churches, what do we think, or mega churches, what do we think? You probably don't really get to know anyone that well. It's just this huge, massive place with great programs, but hard to really plug in. But what do you see in the early church? It was a mega church, and yet they were living in intimate community together. Intimate community. Now, again, we certainly have our challenges today. One, I think we live in a very transient time, especially in the city we see this, where people just, it's not uncommon for within a five-year span for a person to move twice, maybe three times different cities. That makes community hard because the attitude is, I'm not even going to be here long. I might only be here for the next four years. So why pour myself into these people? Why like spend all that time making all these deep relationships? Not going to be here anyway. Uh, we live a far busier life than I think people in the ancient times did, right? Uh, ancient Near East, our life is go, go, go. And secondly, or thirdly, it's filled with so many distractions, right? Ancient Near Eastern people weren't driving their kids to soccer practice. Those things weren't happening. They just played with dirt and sticks, right? But we're like, boom, 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 boom. Parents like shuttling their kids everywhere. And it's, it's busy and we're, we're just distracted in a million ways and it makes community so hard. And so for many of us, frankly, we do settle for shallow relationships at church. We're satisfied with just attending the worship service, which is important. We'll get to that in a second. But we just settle for shallow relationships. But it is to our own loss. It is to the detriment of us as a church corporately and individually as well. Because think about this. How does God grow a person? How does God's transforming power come to bear on a person? It's always in the context of community. How do you grow in the fruits of the Spirit? How do you grow in love, peace, patience, kindness? It's not by sitting in a room by yourself, be more patient. Lord, help me be more patient, be more patient. No, it's when God takes you and puts you in the context of community and surrounds you with people that are different than you and sometimes who annoy you. That one guy who always has his foot in his mouth and says the most offensive things to you, right? How do you learn patience? It's by trying to love someone like that. And you say, God, I want to strangle them, but help me to be patient. That's how you learn to become patient in the context of community. Healthy Christians, healthy Christians 
arise out of healthy community. You cannot separate the two. Maturing in the faith is always a result of a mature community and commitment to community. A community where we genuinely share life together, walk through life's up and downs together, carry each other's burdens, encourage each other as you are being encouraged, being willing to trouble yourself, being willing to put your schedule on hold, mess up your schedule. I had all these things planned, but this person is in need and I'm going to drop it for their sake. If you're struggling with sexual addiction, which in a room this size, guaranteed, many or at least some, if not many of us are, eating disorder, depression, crippling anxiety, your marriage is falling apart, someone in the church should know that. And knowing is the lowest minimum bar. More than just knowing, we should not only be aware of it, but come alongside one another in the midst of that and walk together with them as long as it takes. That's the kind of community that Christ died to create. The third mark we see is a devotion to worship. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's actually different views on what is meant by the breaking of bread. Some people look at the definite article, the breaking of bread, and they say it means communion, the Lord's Supper, where we break bread together. Others will say, no, it's just a reference to sharing meals together, just eating together, because they also called that breaking bread together. But regardless of what exactly is meant in this verse, what we do know is that the early church ate together in their homes as we read day by day. This happened all the time. But not only that, we also know they formally shared the Lord's Supper with regularity. On top of that, not only were they participating in the Lord's Supper with regularity, it says, and we are, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Not just they devoted themselves to prayer, but the prayers. Meaning, formal set prayers in the context of a worship service, there was a regularity. There was a structure. A lot of times when we talk about the early church, because it stresses how they met day by day in homes, a lot of people will look at that and just focus on that aspect. And so they'll come to this conclusion. You don't need formal church worship, worship services. You just meet out, hang out in homes, not even homes. Just go to Starbucks. And we'll just study the Bible together and we're doing church, man. You know, I hear a lot of that from the younger pastors coming up. Why do we need, why is formal church so important? It's not even, people don't want to go to church anymore. We could just do church at Starbucks, right? Some people come to this conclusion. But what we see here, verse 46, day by day, look what it says, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So what do you see? Both. Yes, informal, but also a formal gathering of worship in the temple. Now, the entire New Testament early church, at this point, it's all Jewish converts. So temple was a part of their life. The difference was now they knew the temple pointed to Jesus, the ultimate dwelling of God. And secondly, the temple, instead of meeting on Saturday, they began to shift it to Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection, because it is Jesus who brings us into our eternal Sabbath. But my simple point is this. What we're doing here today, formally gathering as a church to sing praises, to offer up the prayers, to hear the word of God taught, and oftentimes share in the Lord's Supper This is a huge, crucial aspect 
What we're doing here is an incredibly important part of what God is going to do in your life and wants to do through our lives is this Sunday gathering is such an important piece in that. But the problem is, as we often say, familiarity breeds contempt. Right? We become so used to something, something becomes so familiar, we begin to devalue how special and important that thing is. And that happens with church worship. Look what Michael Horton writes. He writes this so beautifully. Setting aside the ordinary callings and pastimes of the week, our calling on the Lord's Day is to share together with our co-heirs in the powers of the age to come. It is not by simply emptying the day with a list of rules, but by filling it with treasure hunting that the Christian Sabbath orients us, our families, and our fellow saints to our heavenly citizenship. However, everyone around you sees it as the ideal day for a trip to the mall, sports, and other entertainments. Whatever fills our Sundays fills our hearts throughout the week. The Lord's Day is not a prison, but a palace. It is a wonderful gift to turn off the devices that interrupt our daily schedules and to push our roots down into the fertile soil that produces trees in God's garden. What a beautiful quote. Sunday is not just about emptying your schedule. It's not just about not working. It's about filling your heart with more of Jesus. It's not a prison, restrictive prison. It's a palace to see and meet King Jesus and to treasure in King Jesus in deeper ways. Could it be, could it be that for some of us, our Monday to Saturday is such a grind, is so miserable, is so meaningless. Could it be because perhaps we don't give our Sundays the value it deserves? This is what Horton's getting at. God created the Sabbath to orient the rest of your life where you come here and like the early Christians experience the awe of God being reminded of his presence and power. And out of that, when they gathered, it fueled them for when they scattered. And what should happen here each and every Sunday as you come, you drink deeply of the truth of the gospel. You meet Jesus. You're reminded of his reality and his calling upon your life so that when you step out there on Monday, Instead of Monday being this meaningless grind that you're dragging your feet through, you go into work or as a stay-at-home mom, you start that week with a sense of purpose, a sense of value in what you're doing. And so you see how when you value Sunday appropriately, it brings value to the rest of your week. Unfortunately, and I'll be admitted, I'll admit, I'm tempted to do this sometimes, the Sunday Eagles game has more of a shaping influence on how your Monday to Saturday go than this, right? Sunday goes well and Monday, hey, how you doing, Bob? Good to see you today. Eagles lose a terrible loss Monday. Get out of my face. Don't bother me, right? It shapes your whole week or whatever team you follow. How much more should it be that this, what we do here should shape our weeks and bring tremendous meaning to everything else that we do Monday through Saturday. Final mark we see. A devotion to the spread of the gospel. Verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In the coming weeks, we're going to just, we're going to see how these Christians were so committed to the spread of the gospel. They were willing to go to prison. They were willing to die. And many of them did. But we can also say a big reason why they were so effective in their witness 
was because through them, the gospel was not just taught, but it was caught. The gospel wasn't simply taught, but it was caught. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a, it's a phrase that's often used when it comes to describing how the learning process happens. How does a person learn to do something? How did you learn to do your job, for those of you who have a job? Someone didn't just come, or maybe they did, but they shouldn't have, just come to you with a binder? This explains everything. Good luck, and just walk away. Right? No, they had to model for you. They had to say, here's what I'm doing. Okay, you see what I'm doing? This is what you do. You follow me, right? And so instead of simply being taught, things are also caught by watching. I went to seminary. Seminary teaches you how to preach. Seminary teaches you how to counsel. Seminary teaches you those things, and that's important. But you know where primarily what shaped and influenced me and helped me grow as a pastor? Not those four years. It was important. I don't want to take away from that. But the bulk of what really shaped me was watching my mentors, watching other pastors, watching people who've been doing it way longer than me, watching them preach, watching them teach, watching them shepherd, learning from their examples. This is what shaped me deeply. And likewise, when you look at the early church, yes, they preached the gospel. We see that with Peter. But you know what they also did? They lived as a a loving, sacrificial community. They put that on display in front of the world in their neighborhoods. And people saw that and they say, wow. So that's what this Christianity is about. Look how they love each other. Look how they forgive each other. Look how though they come from completely different backgrounds, they're so invested in each other and they're closer than I am with my actual biological family. There's something beautiful about that, attractive about that, that their life was contagious And you see, through them, people caught the truth of Christ. And of course, it's through their contagiousness that people would say, and so what is it that makes you the way that you are? And it would be that opportunity that they would take to then teach the gospel in words. Well, here's why we are the way we are. Too often, community becomes an end to mission rather than a context for it. Meaning, too often at church, we make community the end. It just stops there. I'm glad I have community. I'm glad I have friends. I'm glad I have people to come out with. I'm glad I have someone to talk to in the fellowship hall, as if that's the end. That's a part of it. But community isn't just the end of mission. It's the context for it. As the world around us sees the way we love each other and are invested in each other, that's where they see the reality of Jesus. This truth is affirmed every single baptism Sunday at our church. Every time a person comes to Christ, over and over again, I'm reminded of this truth. As the pastor, we ask them to share their testimonies, and I'm sitting back there while they share their testimony at West Philly. I'm sitting in the back, and they're sharing from the pulpit their testimony of saving faith. And every so often, they'll say something like, the sermon struck me, and it helped me to see more of Jesus. But you know, the overwhelming majority of the testimonies... (laughs) Sounds something like this. Yeah, I like the worship. The sermon drew me in. But when I began to meet people and I joined a community group and they loved me and they walked with me through the worst moments of my life and they cried with me and they prayed for me, that's when I got to experience that Jesus is real. And the overwhelming majority of salvation testimonies sound like that. 
This is why Jesus says and prays in John 17, Father, may they be one as you and I are one. Why? So the world would know that you have sent me. When the church loves each other and is devoted to one another as we're supposed to be, that's how the world comes to see that what we're doing here is more than any other social club. That God is real and Christ is real and he's at work in this world. So having seen these marks, the word, a devotion to the word of the gospel, fellowship, worship, and the spread of the gospel, let me address the mindset of the early church. The mindset that they had, and this is so very important. We see the mindset in the qualifier that comes at the very start. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They devoted themselves to it. This is so important. Yes, the Holy Spirit is the ultimate cause for why a church thrives. Absolutely. But you know what the Holy Spirit is working to do? To stir up within us a devotion to everything we just talked about. And that's how the church grows. In other words, we play a part. We play a part. Could God zap us into spiritual maturity? Could God zap us into spiritual thriving without us doing anything? He could if he wanted to, but that's not how he chooses to work. It's by his Holy Spirit he enables us to be devoted to these means of grace. And through that is when thriving comes. We play a part. As with many other things in life, you're going to get out what you put in. You're going to get out what you put in. I think the best example of this is working out, exercising. Casual gym goers. If you can go to the gym for the course of a year and you take a before picture and an after picture. But if you're a casual gym goer, which is something like this. Should I go to the gym today? I don't feel like it. I'll go tomorrow. Next day. Should I go to the gym today? I'll just go next week. And then when you actually do make it to the gym, you just walk in. Look at this machine over here. Sit down. Oh, hey, Bill. How's it going? I haven't seen you here in a while. And having a conversation and get up. There's no effort. There's no sweat. It's just casually walking around. Try a little bit of this. Try a little bit of that. And then they walk out the door. I guarantee you, if you compare the before and after picture after the course of one year, you will see no change. And the same holds true in a sense, spiritually speaking. A little bit of word. And maybe I'll read it sometimes. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll pay attention to the message. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll go to the community. I'll go a little. I'll attend here and I'll attend there. A little bit of this little bit of that. What do you think is going to happen over the course of a year? Not much. Not much. Imagine, however, however, imagine with me, if in your own personal life, you were fully devoted to this, fully devoted to soaking this in, to studying it, Parents, fully devoted to to sharing this with your child, fully devoted to raising them in the gospel, I have no doubt it would make your lives and the lives of your children radically different. Where there would be a sense of, as we see in the early church, an awe of God. Imagine you were fully devoted to worship. You devote yourself Saturday night 
to getting good rest so you're not doing this action Sunday morning, right? Fully devoted. And even in your worship time here, fully devoted. And after the worship time, fully devoted to mull over what was heard, what was taught, and how does this apply to my life? And chewing on it and letting it sink deeper into your heart and talking with your kids about it, fully devoted in that way. It would make an enormous difference in our spiritual health. As we talked about earlier, it would make an enormous difference in your Monday through Saturday. Imagine if you're fully devoted to each other in community, truly sharing life together. You know, so often, I think this is true of most churches as I talk to other pastors who are friends of mine, when we first launch community groups, like September or whatever season a church launches its community groups, what do we see? The first couple meetings, it's bursting at the seams. Everybody's there, 100% attendance. I've heard some of your CG or community groups are like 25 people and 20 children. You could actually probably be your own church, all crammed into one little house or apartment, right? But then what happens? October, half. November, a quarter of the people who were originally there. December, it's like the leader, co-leader, and one other person. And that person feels like they're in an intervention with the two leaders just staring at them. So what's going on in your life? Uh, right? Or, you know, we could, this, is, this holds true to a church where we might go with this great excitement right? There's a buzz, something new is happening. This actually happens all the time in church planning. You get this core of people, you get this initial group gathered, and it's exciting. There's a buzz. But then over the course of time, what happens? People slowly trickle away because they go with expectations of what it's going to be like and what they think it should be like. And then over the course of time, their expectation goes unmet. They're disappointed. It's warm in here. I didn't know the gym would be this warm. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not picking on you, but that might be what some of us are thinking, right? And, and I thought the leaders would be like this. And I thought the situation would be like that. And slowly people just begin to just trickle off. And they say, actually, in most church plants, by year five, the original core team, none of them are there. It's a trend we see. Now, I think one thing to understand that would serve us very well in this dynamic is understanding a principle that holds true in marriage as well. In marriage, there are three seasons a marriage should go through. First season is enchantment, where you first get married, honeymoon season, you know, where you see each other and you see no wrong in the other person. They're just all you, you just accentuate all the positives about them. Oh, they're so great. They're so wonderful. And you know what? We're so different. We're so opposite, but I love it. You know, like I'm the like super organized spreadsheet person, but my husband, he'll call me in the middle of work and just be like, honey, we're going to take off from work tomorrow. And we're just going to go to the beach all day long, but we can't do that. No, we're going to spend all day because I love you. I love how he's so different than me. Enchantment. Next season is disenchantment, where all of a sudden all of their ugly things come out that you didn't even realize before. This guy cuts his toenails on the coffee table, and there's nail clippings flinging everywhere, and he doesn't clean up after himself, right? And the things that used to be so cute just start to annoy you. You can't just call me in the middle of the day and expect me to drop everything that I'm doing. You're so irresponsible, right? The things that you thought were once wonderful and great, you hate now. That's disenchantment. And a lot of people will check out 
on the relationship once that point comes. I married the wrong person. I'm not happy anymore. To their own detriment. Because the third season is maturity. Maturity is when the couple says, I see all your ugliness. You see all my ugliness. I see all your junk and you see all mine. But you know what? We're committed to one another. And we're committed to work this out. And like a gem tumbler, right? Where you have two precious stones but still have a lot of rough edges. When they knock up against each other in the gem tumbler, they become smoother and smoother and more precious. They mature. That's what's meant to happen in a marriage. And that's what's meant to happen in a church. Where at first you're enchanted. This is great. I love this. And this is so different than my last church. And da 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 da. But then there's disenchantment. Oh, I don't like this. This is disappointing to me. But instead of just checking out as we stick it through, what begins to happen is this process of maturity where God works in you individually. God works in the group in ways that never would have happened had you just checked out. It's a beautiful process that God designed for us. If we are to be a healthy church and healthy individuals, there must be a devotion to all of these marks. But in closing, where do we find the devotion? Where do we find the motivation to be devoted in the way that we're supposed to be? And it comes down to this. What's the first mark listed? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I think there's a reason why it comes first. There's probably many reasons. But I think it works something like this. Apostles' teaching, what did we say? Is the word of God, and what is the word of God? It is a Christ-centered word. And when we see this teaching, we are reminded of just how devoted Jesus is to us. What is going to inspire a devotion to this in your life? Where you love it, you treasure it, you meditate on it, you memorize it, you soak it in, you live it and apply it in the grace of God. It's when you realize and take to heart that Christ was the word who became flesh and made his dwelling among us when we least deserved it. He laid down his life in love for us to bring us into his love forevermore. And when that becomes a reality to you, when the Holy Spirit applies that to your heart in a real way where you really understand that, then your attitude becomes one where you say, I love this because I love Jesus. Because it's through this that I experience Jesus and taste more of Jesus, and see more of Jesus. And because I love Jesus, I want to do what he says. He laid down his life for me. I want to lay down my life for him. And where does it tell me how he wants me to live? In here. What's going to cause you to be devoted to worship? It's when you recognize Jesus Christ, who was lifted up in praise for etern- from eternity past, from myriads upon myriads of angels, that very same Jesus chose to lower himself, take the form of a servant, and die a humiliating, shameful, and painful death on a cross to bring us into his family. And when you recognize that, that's what causes your heart to be devoted to making much of him, to to having Monday to Saturday bring glory to him. What causes you to be devoted to community? It's when you realize the way that Christ laid down his life to meet our every need and how Jesus is devoted to us in a way where 
Yes, we fail him. We always fail to meet his expectations. We're always disappointing him. We're never living up to what he would ideally want. And yet, he remains utterly devoted to us in such a way that he promises to get you there till you're perfect before him. What causes us to be devoted to one another is when we see the devotion of Jesus to us. And so, main line, let me encourage you as I close in this especially very important season of the church, its birth. I want to encourage you to be devoted to prayer. And why do I say that? All of these marks devoted to, of course, as we talked about, but especially devoted to prayer. And I say that because, number one, anytime there is a new gospel work started, the enemy will always be at work to destroy it, to snuff it out before it ever gets on the ground. It's without fail true. And so we need to pray for God's grace and protection over us. But we also need to pray because it's the Holy Spirit, as he came down in the Acts chapter 1, as we read, the coming of the Holy Spirit filled the people. That's what caused them to be devoted. And likewise, we need to be praying that the Holy Spirit would move in our congregation in a powerful way. Because you know what? Just gathering a good-sized group of people in a gym doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't guarantee anything. That we did this and took these steps. Now you guys are gathered and there's a good number of you. And we have a building That still doesn't guarantee anything. It's only when the Holy Spirit comes, moves in power, stirs up within us a rediscovery and a deeper appreciation of the truth of Christ, which in turn transforms us to be devoted to these marks. And in devotion to these marks, that's when the church is going to thrive and explode. And day by day, people will be added to their number your number. That's our hope. That's our prayer. Okay? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for your devotion to us that though we regularly fail you and regularly fail to be what you want us to be as individuals and as a church, and yet you remain steadfast with an unbreakable love and devotion to us. Thank you for such mercy. God, we celebrate and thank you the birth of this new congregation. And Lord, we want to be a church defined by these birthmarks because this is your will for us to have an utter devotion to your word, an utter devotion to the the fellowship of believers, an utter devotion to worship, an utter devotion to the spread of your gospel. But we admit, Lord, that we are weak people. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would stir up within us a deepening sense, a deepening uh, appreciation for, a deepening experience of the truth and reality and power of Jesus Christ and his gospel in a way that stirs up within us the devotion we need in these areas so that, indeed, Lord, you would add to our number those who are being saved, that this church would grow both qualitatively in depth and maturity and vibrancy and quantitatively as people who did not know Christ come to know Jesus as a result of the faithfulness and dedication and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in this congregation.
Thank you. Ultimately, Lord, that all of this doesn't rest on our shoulders. You've given us the promise. You are building the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So with a prayerful heart, we depend on you. We trust in you. Make these things true of us. In Jesus' name, for his sake, amen. Let's rise, and we'll close in this song.